Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Hello and welcome to the show. <laughs> uh, we have covered Return of the Living Dead in so many different ways on this channel. I I'm kind of amazed that we have talked about Return of the Living Dead as much as we have, considering that it's a movie, you know, like one movie. I mean, we have just explored endlessly oceans well we've talked about the sequels too in any case i have gotten several requests from people uh to read the novelization and i thought about it and entertained the idea and thought you know that might be a lot of fun so <laughs> in order to be as thorough as, as we can with our return of living dead fandom we are going to read Return of Living Dead chapter by chapter. You can think of this as an audiobook. That's the best way to think about it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just take it chapter by chapter. There's 13 chapters. I think I'm going to do two chapters a month. That's the plan right now. We'll see. And we will just we will go through the entire book uh front to cover. And before we get started, we are going to once again just talk very briefly about the back history. For those of you who have not seen the previous streams in regards to this, I, I purchased this. This is from 1985. It's a very old book. It's as old as me. I'm 36 years old, and so is this book. And you'll notice that the cover art is not the poster because this book, uh, I believe this book might have come out before the the cover art came out I, I don't know how else to explain this sort of stock zombie photograph although you would imagine that maybe that's what the tar man might kind of look like in some way shape or form it's really it's a really grisly sort of image and well you know what this is this is the uk version of the book that's what this is this is the uk version i don't know if they ever Printed it in America. It says first published in 1985. It's copyright copyright by John Russo in 1985. But I think this is a British press. Yeah, printed and brown, printed and bound in Great Britain by Anchor Brendan Limited, Tiptree in Essex. Note to readers: This novel is based on the film of the same name and is markedly different from the earlier novel of the same title by John Russo, which it was originally published by Hamlin Paperbacks. And maybe that's why it only came out in Europe, maybe, or maybe why it was pressed in Britain, because there was the American version of Return of Living Dead. I, I don't know. That's that's a guess. That's a guess for you. That This part of the history is not really covered. But the long and the short of it goes like this. John Russo of night writer of night of living dead writes a sequel called return of living dead that gets that comes out in 77 or 78 78 it's the same year as dawn of the dead you'd imagine that 
he saw that George was doing Dawn of the Dead and wanted to do his own follow up. And that's also very, you know, there was I believe there was some legal proceedings and that's where you get the split where Russo and the Russo verse is uh, living dead and everything that's Romero verse is of the dead. So Romero just retained the dead part and Russo does the living dead part. And Return of the Living Dead is absolutely a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. In my personal opinion, it is absolutely as much of a follow-up to Night of the Living Dead as Dawn of the Dead is. It just is separate continuity, I guess. It's meta before meta. And John Russo can't really take credit for the actual story of Return of the Living Dead because what happened was when Dan O'Bannon, who made the film, he wrote and directed the film, when he came aboard after Toby Hooper uh, sort of bowed out, he rewrote the, the script from scratch. Dan O'Bannon being of alien fame, right? He rewrote the script from scratch and sort of uh, just did took whatever George was doing and did the opposite of it. Your zombies move slow. My zombies move fast. Your zombies eat flesh. My zombies only eat brains. Your zombies can't talk and aren't very smart. My zombies have sent are sentient and can speak and have memories and all sorts of, of jazz like that. And, you know, plus you got the punk rock thing, just all this, all this different stuff that makes Return of the Living Dead so special to all of us. And then what happened was John Russo, who had written because he had, I guess he had he had optioned the rights to Tom Fox. Tom Fox is the producer on the first two or three Return of the Living Dead films, he passed away. Not of like Fox, like Fox, the, the movie studio, Fox, 20th Century Fox. The guy's name was Tom Fox. He he became the, he was the financial sort of right-holding producer of Return of the Living Dead. And so what happened was him and Bannon, they were going to make do the movie. Bannon re- did a page one rewrite of the story. It's really cool. If you can find the original script, it's awesome. There's definitely a couple of little things that aren't in the film as well, uh, particularly a little scrap of a scene with chickens <laughs> where uh, suicide almost runs over some chickens. Really weird to include in the script, but it's there. And so so they they but what they but what happened was next John Russo, then for whatever reason, he wrote this novelization based on Dan O'Bannon's script. That's what happens. So it's like this weird sort of you know, hand washing, hand effect. It starts with Russo, then it goes to O'Bannon, then back to Russo again. So Russo adds, he you're going to hear some things that are definitely not in the film. He adds a little bit of subplot and sort of, you know, injects some of his own sort of, you know, uh, flavor into O'Bannon's story. But it's still an interesting read, and there are some truly terrifying moments. I'm going to try and do mostly a straight read. It's not going to be my read with commentary, Although I may break from time to time, I'm not, I've never done, this is my first time doing like an audiobook. <laughs> but why not? Um, let's attempt it. I don't know if I can read with the sunglasses on, so I may ditch them. Uh, let us begin. So <laughs> I can't bend the spine all the way back because it's a very old book. I'm just going to take these off because I'm not going to be able to see what I'm doing. All right. Chapter one. Freddie Travis was sitting on the john, thinking, hoping that his boss wouldn't come hunting for him in the men's room and fearing if his boss did barge in on him, 
the lack of stink would give away the fact that he didn't really have to take a crap. At age 22, Freddie would have Freddie was having a hell of a time adjusting to his first for real full time job. Like being a nine to fiver was incredibly tough to handle, especially without doing a little speed or popping a couple of perks or something. Man, he told himself, maybe you're trying to get too straight too fast, like going cold turkey. It can really screw up your system. But he was determined to hang in as long as he could take it. Too much more of the street scene and he'd be dead. Up until a few weeks ago, he had been under the illusion that he was on a glide rather than a nosedive. Cruising along, not giving a shit, spouting off the motto he had copped from an old black and white gangster flick. Live fast, die young, and make a good-looking corpse. But now he was scared shitless of dying young. His mind was all bent out of shape from when he and his girlfriend Tina had found their pal Sunshine naked on his bathroom floor, all bloated and green and stinking of gangrene, the broken syringe and needle still sticking in his arm. Seeing Sunshine like that and not quite turned, uh, seeing Sunshine like that had not quite turned Freddy into a born-again straight, but it had been the first step in his conversion. He was trying damned hard to get his act together, but sometimes his doubts about himself were enough to give him the shakes. If he didn't have Tina pulling for him, he wouldn't have a prayer. He figured that by now, the rest of the gang would know he was working as a shipping clerk at Unita Medical Supply Warehouse. Tina would have had to come clean because otherwise everybody just keep bugging her about why her old man had been totally splitsville the last couple of days. It was okay for Chuck to know he was a fairly straight dude, almost as unspacey as Tina. Casey would take it in her stride, too, outside of being sort of a nymphomaniac. Her head was on her shoulders pretty much all of the time. Her head on her shoulders pretty much of the time. But meat and scuzz and legs, they would flip out. To them, any kind of job was really rad. They were punkers through and through. As hardcore as Freddie had been till Sunshine's OD had opened his eyes. They were punkers through and through. And though as hardcore as Freddie had been till Sunshine's OD, he had opened his eyes. He stood up, buckled his jeans, came out of the stall, glancing around nervously, still expecting his boss to pop in on him. When it didn't happen, he decided to fudge a few more minutes. One of the things that had him so damn shaky was that right after lunch, four hours ago, he had been given the job of packing up a human brain preserved in formaldehyde, which had been ordered by a medical college in Duluth. It was a miracle that he managed not to toss his cookies right then and there. Stomach acid still popped up in his throat every time he remembered what a brain looked like. He tried not to think about it but he couldn't get the grisly image out of his head. Head, even the word head made him think about the brain floating around in a bottle. When he applied for this job, he had pictured himself packing up wheelchairs and stethoscopes. Nice, sedate, helpful stuff. No way had he imagined that he'd have to handle human organs and body parts preserved in formaldehyde. 
If he had a glimmer of such madness, he sure as hell would have stayed away from Unita Medical Supply. After washing his hands, he took off his red baseball cap and looked at himself in the mirror. He barely recognized the straight dude that stared back at him, clean-shaven, with his, with his short-cropped brown hair neatly parted and combed. Except for the little golden ring in his right ear and the cartoon drawing of a turd on his yellow T-shirt with the caption, I got my shit together, he could have damn near passed for an Ivy Leaguer from the mid-60s. Up until last week, his hair had been in cornrows and pigtails, and his face had been painted in zany designs of orange, purple, and chartreuse. But he sacrificed his need for individual artistic expression in order to become a cog in the wheel of commerce. Freddie was thankful that his first week at the big, gloomy warehouse would be a short one. Fourth of July fell on a Wednesday this year, so it would make for a nice, long weekend. Starting off on a two-day week was the main reason Freddie had believed he might be able to endure the suffering of easing himself into a routine. But unfortunately, his boss had sounded on him sticking around for some the uh, but unfortunately, his boss had sounded him on stick had sounded him on sticking around for some overtime, and he was scared to say no. Deep down, he understood that he absolutely mustn't blow this job. <laughs> Sorry, I have to take that last one again. Deep down, he understood that he absolutely mustn't blow this job. <laughs> Sorry. He had to prove it to himself. Otherwise, he might end up like his pal Sunshine. In a sudden seizure of panic, he might have been goofing off too long. He barged out of the men's room and almost smacked his boss, Frank Nello, in the face with the door. But Nello jumped back with remarkable agility, considering he was 45 years old and about the same number of pounds overweight. Christ, what are you trying to do, kid? Kill me? He complained good-naturedly. I was worried about you. I came to see if maybe you fell in. Constipated, Freddie mumbled. That's my problem. Want some x lax I keep a supply in the office at all times, said Frank. No, thanks. It was a hard one, but I finally forced it out, Freddie lied. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's past quitting time. While you were on the throne, everybody went home except you, me, and the warehouse foreman, Bert Wilson. He's making his rounds, checking security. Fred clapped Freddie on the shoulder. I don't mind telling you. I like the way you hauled ass today, kid. I had my doubts about you because of that ring in your ear. My advice is to get rid of it if you want to look more mature. Last kid we hired was one of those turned out to... Last kid we hired with one of those turned out to be a friggin' doper. We didn't need to fire him. He quit when he found out the kind of medical supplies we were shipping out here don't include drugs. He peered at Freddie sharply to see if the mention of the word drugs might cause the kid to drool out the mouth. But Freddie kept a poker face. He already pegged Frank Nello as a sort of Italian Archie Bunker, a portly, balding clown with a red bulbous nose.
likable in spite of his prejudice against anyone under 30 who didn't aspire to own a, to owning a fat mortgage on a ticky tacky house in the suburbs with aluminum siding, a one car garage, a set of rusty swings and seesaws in the backyard for the 2.3 kids. His nose might have turned that way from drinking too much whiskey and beer, but it was a okay to him because he didn't consider alcohol a drug. You got to learn the warehouse kid, Frank lectured. We were too busy today for me to try and teach you the ropes good and proper. That's why I asked you to hang in after quitting time. Now that the shit has stopped hitting the fan around here, we can, we can hear ourselves think a little bit. Believe me, if you want to get ahead, you got to know the layout like the back of your hand. Fred waved his arm around the aisles and tiers of green steel shelving in the big, dusty, barn-like building as if he were a monarch gesturing grandiosely at the splendors of his domain. It was clear that he identified completely with his work here and took great pride in it. His clean gray work clothes were crisply starched and pressed. And there was a red and white, you need a medical supply patch on his breast pocket. Putting his arm around Freddie in a fatherly way, he said, let me give you another piece of friendly advice, kid. No offense now, okay? Sure, Freddie said, trying to trying hard to feel just a trace of the warmth that his boss obviously felt for the warehouse. But to him, it felt like a cluttered jail or worse, a morgue. The few narrow windows in the place were so grimy they almost didn't exist, but merely blended into the walls of corrugated steel reaching up uh, of corrugated steel reaching up to a corrugated steel roof and a tangle of steel girders. The naked light bulbs dangling down from the girders had halos around them caused by dust. In the lack of sunlight and fresh air, Freddie could almost feel himself turning into a ghastly, sickly color like his pal Sunshine. He had to force himself to pay attention to Frank Nello. Get yourself a nice working uniform like I got. Show Bert, Bert Wilson you got the proper attitude. You want to get ahead? That shit t-shirt, that shitty t-shirt you're wearing might be all right for a gag or a Halloween party or something. But in regular everyday life, a lot of people might be offended by a picture of a turd, even if it's done in jest. I'll get rid of it, Freddie promised, trying not to let despair show in his voice as he felt his sense of individuality being squeezed out of him. He thought that not wearing the t-shirt anymore might be like ditching a good luck charm. He needed the reminder. I got my shit together. Otherwise he might start believing that he really didn't. You can keep the baseball cap. Frank said people can get by with baseball caps, but the ring in the ear and the t-shirt you can do without. Gotcha. Freddie murmured. Just then a gray steel door across the aisle from the men's room popped open and Bert Wilson came up from the basement. He was a big freckled redheaded man with thick lensed black frame glasses dressed in the same kind of gray work work clothes as Frank Nello, including the Unita medical supply patch on the breast pocket. The uniform wasn't company issue. So somebody was copying and Fred guessed that Frank might be must be patterning himself pattern patterning himself after Bert in order to score brownie points. Hey, Frank, it's quitting time. The warehouse foreman boomed. Go home. Enjoy your holiday. He jingled a set of keys on a fat ring. 
Everything's ship shape, tight as a drum. I'm going to stick around for a while, Frank Nello said to Bert Wilson. Got some orders to fill. The kid's going to stay here with me and pick up some juicy overtime. I want him to learn the ropes real fast so he can take up more of the slack. Okay, but lock up the office and turn on the alarm when you leave, will you? And remember, you and the family are invited to my place tomorrow for my annual 4th of July barbecue. Wouldn't miss it for the world, Frank beamed. You're invited too, kid, Bert said to Freddie. Think you can make it? Gee, thanks, but... But I already promised to go to my girlfriend's place. Freddie lied. Her folks are expecting us. Okay, well, maybe next year, Bert said. He smiled goodheartedly. I think you're still going to be with us come next year. Frank has a lot of good things to say about you at lunch. Frank had a lot of good things to say about you at lunchtime. Well, thanks, Fred stammered. Bert Wilson left and Frank and Freddie were alone in the huge warehouse. Freddie felt dismal, almost scared. He worried a little over whether Bert's security check was valid. How could anyone really be sure that some freak wasn't hiding somewhere around here? The place was a vast maze of potential hiding places. The stark overhead lighting cast a tangle of black shadows among the tall shelves and aisles of various sized crates and boxes. Anybody or anything could be lurking. Walk down any of these aisles alone and a rabid rat or raving hatchet murderer might jump out at you. Freddie made up his mind to try and stick close to Frank, if possible, while they were working alone tonight. First, let's grab a cup of coffee to get our brains stimulated, Frank said. They went to where the coffee machine was, in the cluttered office that Frank shared with Bert Wilson, where each man had his own gray steel desk surrounded by tall black filing cabinets piled high with company forms and logbooks. Freddie and Frank sipped black coffee in plastic cups as Frank rifled through a stack of purchase orders on a clipboard and Freddie peered over his shoulder, trying to look intensely interested. Okay, Freddie, said Frank. We got an order here for two skeletons for the St. Louis University School of Medicine. See the specs here? Yeah, said Freddie, reading over Frank's shoulder. They want two adult female skeletons with perfect teeth. Frank emphasized, tapping the order form with his index finger. That's an AF-1. You could look it up here in the logbook, but I don't have to because I know it off by heart. I have to learn everything by heart, Freddie asked, failing to hide his dismay. It'll come easy to you, smart kid like you, Frank soothed. You'll see. Mark my words. By the time you fill a couple of hundred forms, you won't need to rely on the logbook too much, except for special items nobody wants, but once in a coon's age. He rubbed his hands together with enthusiasm. Come on, let's get started. Done with your coffee? Uh-huh, Freddie said, gulping it down. Picking up the clipboard. Frank led the way, two adult females with perfect teeth, he repeated, exuberant in his knowledge of exactly where to find them. As I said, that's an AF-1. So we go to the A section, which is divided into M and F. He stopped facing Freddie, hands on his hips, clipboard under his right arm. Now, what do you suppose M and F stand for? Male and female, Freddie responded. You got it. Bright kid. Come on. He led the way into the A section where dozens of human skeletons were hanging from steel poles by means of wire hooks attached to their heads. The skeletons were wrapped in transparent plastic bags that gave Freddy the creeps. Trying not to think of what 
they really were. He tried to pretend that they were suits and garment ba bags hanging up on a rack at a dry cleaning establishment. He wondered if sunshine was reduced to a skeleton yet. He guessed not. It would take longer than a few weeks. Probably the flesh was still moldering from the bones eaten by worms. Freddy shuddered and tried to pause the thought out of his mind. He tried to push the thought. Blah, 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 blah. He tried to push the thought out of his mind. There's one with perfect teeth, Frank said cheerfully. Take it down from the rack. Freddy trembled. Got a chill, kid? Frank said. I'm a bit chilly myself. We can turn on the we can turn the air conditioning down. No need for it to be up so high now that there aren't a bunch of guys in here putting putting out body heat. Stealing himself. Freddie lifted the surprisingly light human skeleton, holding it by its head. Right here, right here. There's the packing crate, Freddie instructed. See, we just put a bed of excelsior in here. Unnerved by staring face to face into the skeleton's eye sockets, Freddie was grateful of the opportunity to lower it into the packing crate which reminded him of a coffin. Now we put some more Excelsior all around, Fred said. Freddie helped him, anxious to get the bones covered up. You perspiring kid, Frank said. First you got the chills, then the sweats. You think you might be coming down with the flu? Maybe you ought to stay home tomorrow, even if it is the fourth. No, I'm okay, Freddie protested, feeling better now that the pink Excelsior was covering the skeleton. He helped Frank put the lid on the crate. Then as Frank made a notation on the purchase order. Freddie asked, where in the world do they get all these skeletons? I asked Bert Wilson that question once. I don't know if he was teasing me or not, but he claims they come from India. An international treaty, he told me. All skeletons come from India. Is that right? How come? I swear, I don't have the slightest idea, but sometimes I wonder how they get all these skeletons with perfect teeth. How many people you know die with a, with perfect teeth? Gotta have a few cavities, right? Frank chuckled. I think maybe they have a skeleton farm somewhere over in India. Overpopulation, Freddy said. Disease, starvation. A lot of Hindus die young. They don't live long enough to get to even get tooth decay. You a philosopher, kid? Frank asked. You're spouting off some pretty deep stuff. <laughs> what? <laughs> he eyed Freddy piercingly as if he had given evidence of being a communist and then he pivoted and said come on i want to show you some stuff you didn't get to see the last couple of days because it was so damn hectic around here freddie followed with trepidation hoping that he wouldn't have to look at any more skeletons frank said you already know where the prosthetic limbs are right and the wheelchairs gurneys and the beds for invalids and the oxygen that's where we keep it Watch out for the oxygen. It's explosive. Don't smoke around it. Mr. Wilson told me not to smoke anywhere in the warehouse, Freddie said. That's right. But sometimes a guy weak, a guy might weaken and sneak one. I noticed you got cigarettes in your jacket when you hung it up this morning. All I'm saying is if you are ever going to sneak one, don't do it around the oxygen section or you might blow us all to kingdom come. I'm not going to smoke on the job at all, Freddie promised. And he was scared enough of the thought of blowing himself up that his promise was sincere, even though he was dying to get some nicotine into his lungs. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, said Frank, but I don't believe you ever had to fill out an order for a split dog. Split dog, Freddie said perplexedly. 
That's what I said, Frank chuckled, split dog. Here's one. He pointed at a shelf where a black and white mongrel stood mounted on a stand. At first, Freddy didn't notice anything unusual about the animal other than the, the other than the fact that it was dead and mounted like a taxidermist trophy. But then Frank pulled it out and spun it around, and it was truly a split dog. An embalmed half of a dog split down the middle so that its organs could be viewed in a cross-section. Yipe! Freddy gulped. I admit it's grotesque, but you get used to it, said Frank. They split dog. The split dogs are for veterinary schools. Veterinary schools. This is the only one we have on hand right now. We get an awful lot of orders for split dogs, so you'll be handling them day in and day out. Turn it back around, said Freddy. Turn it back around, Freddy said. If I have to handle them, I'll never turn one around. I'll pretend the other side is whole. Don't be squeamish, kid. It don't pay off around here, Frank advised. You think split dogs are bad? What about the humans? We keep dead humans around here, too. How come Bert Wilson didn't tell me? Freddy stammered. He n never mentioned anything like that when he first interviewed me for the job. I guess he figured you already knew, or at least could guess. After all, this is a medical supply firm. Everybody knows doctors practice on dead bodies. Come on, I have to show you where we keep them. Wondering how he could make his feet go where, when he was half paralyzed with fright, Freddie tagged along with Frank Nello. He tried to bolster his nerve by telling him that he probably wasn't going to see any decomposed bodies. He wasn't going to see anybody that looked like sunshine, all bloated and green. Doctors like fresh corpses to practice on, corpses that were well-preserved. Frank walked Freddy over the big freezer door and opened the door, and they went in. Frank stood frozen in the doorway. Come on, kid, Frank bellowed. I don't want to linger here and catch a cold. I want to show you what's here and get out. Don't be scared to come in. Somebody who's already half dead is safe. Only living people can hurt you. Freddie made him Freddie made himself enter the dreaded freezer. Frank explained, this is where we keep the fresh cadavers. We sell them to medical schools and to other places, sometimes to the U.S. Army for ballistics tests and whatever. Right now, there's only one cadaver on hand. We're low on inventory, but we got a shipment coming in on Monday. Freddie's eyes bulged as Frank slid a large steel drawer part of the way out, revealing a dead young man about Freddie's age, all wrapped up in plastic. There were no marks on the body, no indication as to the cause of death. His imagination prodded by fear, Freddie wondered if maybe there was a corpse farm somewhere, like the skeleton farm in India, where healthy people were made to die in untelltale ways so that a continuous flow of cadavers could be insured for medical schools and for ballistic tests for the U.S. Army. Let's get out of here before we catch pneumonia and wind up like this poor stiff, Frank said, slamming the steel door shut. A lot of foreshadowing in this book. <laughs> Freddie gladly backed out of the cold storage locker, trying not to hurry as much as he wanted to, so his boss wouldn't laugh at him for being scared. How many bodies are usually in here? Usually, he asked in what hoped was a conversational tone. Well, we try not to overstock. It's like a restaurant business. You don't want your inventory to lose its freshness. Chortling at his own joke, Freddie clapped. Frank clapped Freddie on the back. Come on back and help me nail the lid on that skeleton, and I'll show you how to fill out the shipping forms. 
The door to the cold storage locker had been standing open. Freddie closed it much to Fred. The door to the cold storage locker had been standing open. Frank closed it much to Freddie's relief, but it promptly came open again. How come you don't lock it? Freddie ventured. I see a, ha- a hasp and a padlock there, but it wasn't on when we came, even though Mr. Wilson checked security. We don't usually like to use that lock, said Frank. Too much trouble to always be fussing with the combination. Most of us don't come in here unless we have to, and there's certainly nothing in here a thief would want to bring home. But you got to always remember to close this door. Good, or else it pops open. He slammed the door hard, stared at it, and it stayed shut. Let's lock it, Freddie suggested. No, nah, it'll stay now. I got the right touch. But Freddie remained doubtful as they walked back towards the skeleton they had to finish getting ready for the shipment. Now he knew he was in the presence of a corpse that might not stay locked up. He was truly anxious to get away from the warehouse. In a meek voice, as so as not to piss Frank off, he, he asked, how late do you think will work? The only reason I ask is I have a date for eight o'clock. Frank glanced at his wristwatch. Maybe we'll keep adding another hour or so and then knock off. What's the matter? You don't like making time and a half? I thought I was doing you a favor. Young kid trying to get started in life. Oh, well, I really appreciate it, Frank. Honestly, I do. But Frank smirked knowingly. Got something hot waiting for you, huh? My girlfriend, Tina Vitali. Last name's Vitali, Frank said. Nice, clean Italian girl. I'm sorry, kid. I didn't mean to. That's okay, Frank. I forgot you mentioned a steady girlfriend. I better watch my mouth from here on out. I don't usually like to talk that way about a nice, clean girl. I understand, said Freddie, hoping Frank's sense of propriety and embarrassment would lead him to atone by letting him get off work in a short while. And that brings us to the end of chapter one. Um, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll close out by sort of just a little discussion. So you notice there already, there's a few differences there in the, the walk-in freezer, there are drawers in the movie. It's, you know, a hanging cadaver and they leave the padlock unlocked. And obviously we all know how the movie goes. You wouldn't be watching this or listening to this book if you didn't already have seen the movie if you hadn't already had seen the movie. And you also notice some difference in names there. There's meat. Meat is suicide, I believe. And no meat is spider. Suicide is still in the script and legs is trash. And you'll notice that there's this whole backstory about sunshine. You'll also notice like John Russo's writing. He's really trying to sound hip in the eighties. He's trying to talk about like, it sounds like a, like an older hippie, right? It's like an older hippie who's grown up trying to relate to the young kids, I guess, with some of his, right? But some of his writing is quite good. I like it. So uh, I'll keep it short. Uh, tune in next time for chapter two, and that's how we'll do it. We'll just go chapter by chapter, with a little bit of an intro and a little bit of a commentary afterwards. Um, thank you so much. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe, and yada, 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 all the rest.